0: Anybody wondering what I'm doing? Well, I'm conducting some research. Might take a bit. See, in this bag, I have placed all of the pieces to an alarm clock. Let's see what we have in the bag. In the bag we have the back of the clock, we have the body of the clock, we have one of the bells. I mean, how are you going to have an alarm clock if you don't have the bells? And in here we have, well, there's some screws and there's some, looks like there's some hands, there's all the things that go into making an alarm clock. It's not working yet. So I'm going to keep going. You see, you might be wondering, why am I doing this? Anybody wondering? You see, using today the laws of science and the laws of probability, the scientific method, I am testing my theory. My theory is this, if I shake this bag long enough, having all the pieces in just the right place, in just the right time, if I shake this bag long enough, my theory, because all of the pieces to make this clock work are inside the bag. If I shake this bag long enough, my theory is that each and every piece will somehow make its way into just the right place so that I will have, when I'm done, a working alarm clock. Might take a while. You don't have anywhere to go, do you? Now, I know... uh, you're thinking, well, can you make an alarm clock by just shaking all the pieces in the bag? Well, that's not where my theory ends. You see, as I shake this bag, having all the pieces in the right place, I not only want to create an alarm clock that works, I want to create an alarm clock that produces little alarm clocks. (laughs) Little time X's. Hopefully, I'll be able to pass them out next Christmas. You see, I have all the pieces in the bag. Nothing is missing. And I shake them, hopefully to make an alarm clock. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the statistical probability that by having all the right pieces in this bag... That by shaking this bag, because all the pieces are in the right place, using the laws of probability, what is the statistical probability that I will be, by shaking this bag, be able to create a working and alarm clock? Well, that's interesting. I've heard a couple of things. Somebody said zero. Anybody want to yell out another statistic? How many of you think the chances are pretty good? Okay, well, here's the thing. It's interesting because by shaking this bag long enough, here's what I'm going to find. There's going to come a time when I'm going to become tired. And uh, because as I look at this, what I realize is that by the time I get to the end of my life, if I shake this just one shake every second at the end of my life, I'm going to have to pass this bag off to somebody else to continue the shaking. It's interesting to me that scientists tell us that the statistical probability for creating even one molecule of of the DNA or one DNA molecule, the statistical probability of creating one DNA molecule by having all the pieces in the right place at the right time, the statistical probability is I have one chance in 10 to the 130th power. Now you say, what does that mean? Well, if to create even one molecule of DNA, 10 to the one chance and 10 to the 130th, if I were to take that and let's say we placed it in that bag and began to shake it very much like our, our, our uh, research today, and if I were to begin shaking that bag one shake every second for 15 billion years. Years, which some people say is the age of the universe as we know it, that would equal one in 10 to the 17th, not 10 to the 130th power. Now, what does that mean? Well, one shake every second for 10 to the 17th would come out to about 15 billion years. You have one chance in 15 billion years to do that but it's not 15 billion years it's one chance in 100 or 10 to 130th power now there is in science or statistics a term that is called statistical absurdity how many of you have ever heard of that statistical absurdity when something becomes absurd it becomes impossible statistical absurdity is measured at one chance in 10 to the 50th power. But scientists tell me that for all the pieces to be in one place at one time, to be able to create even one DNA molecule, not an entire system, but just one molecule, the chances are one chance in 10 to the 130th power. Way beyond what you and I would call statistical absurdity. And that, my friends, is essentially the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution holds that it all happened just by accident. Now, in my college biology course, as you open the front page, it began to discuss the theory of evolution, and the first little paragraph was entitled, The Miracle of Evolution, which is a fascinating thing, because in this miracle, all by accident, without any outside knowledge... As evolution took place, it's fascinating to me that evolution, without any outside information, without any outside knowledge, just knew, somehow, some way, without any information, just the right distance to place the earth from the sun. I mean, do you realize that if the earth was placed just a few percentage points closer to the sun, that it would create an environment that would be so hot that, that no life could exist on the earth? And that if the earth was placed just a few percentage points away from the sun, further than we are right now, it would produce an environment that would be so cold that no life could exist on the earth. How did evolution, without any knowledge, know just to place it in just the right place? It's also interesting to me that evolution, without any information, without any knowledge, all by random chance, all by accident, knew to place the moon at just the right distance from the earth. You say, why is that so important? What well, do you realize that if the moon was simply 10% further away from the earth, that there would be no tidal changes each and every day and that would create an environment where no life could exist on the face of the earth? That that our whole ecosystem is based upon the tidal changes each and every day. Just a few percentage points further away. But do you realize that if the moon was placed just a little bit closer to the moon because or closer to the Earth because there is a multiplication and the force of gravity, that that would create not tidal changes, but that would create tidal waves that would encompass entire continents. It's fascinating to me. That evolution knew to place the sun at just the right distance from the earth so that we would have just the right temperature. Evolution knew to place the moon at just the right distance from the earth so that we would have tidal changes, but not daily tidal waves. It's also interesting to me that without... Without any outside information, without any knowledge, all by random chance, the evolution knew to rotate the earth at just the right speed. Do you realize that if the earth, all things being equal, if the earth were to rotate just a little bit faster, let's just say 10% faster, do you know what that would do to our environment? That would create in our environment what you might call a rotisserie effect. That is, as we went just a little bit faster, we would begin to heat up as the sun came in in contact with half the earth. But as we went over tonight, we wouldn't have the time to cool down. And so the temperature would just continue to increase a little by little, little by little, ultimately creating an environment that would make life impossible on the earth. But if the earth were to rotate, oh, just 10% slower, that also in itself would create an environment on the planet that would make life impossible on the earth. You see, if the earth rotated just a little bit slower, each day would become extremely hot as noon lasted for four hours. Hotter and hotter, but then the evening would come, and the evening would be longer, and there would be it would create in our environment such an extreme temperature change. It would make life on our planet as we know it impossible. But evolution knew without any outside information, without any knowledge, to do these things in just the precise order. Do you realize that the ozone is tuned plus or minus one half of 1% ends all life on the earth? You see, if there is just one half of 1% too much ozone, that creates an environment where the light cannot come through to allow photosynthesis to take place. Thereby, Killing all life on the earth. However, if the ozone layer is just diminished by one half of 1%, it allows too much radiation to come in and each of us would die of radiation poisoning. Isn't it amazing that without any knowledge whatsoever, evolution understood to place the earth in just the right distance from the sun. Evolution knew to place the moon at just the right distance from the earth. Evolution knew just the right rotation of the earth, just so that we can have life on the earth. And evolution, evolution knew just the right amount of ozone that we would need in order to sustain life on the earth. Isn't that great? Do you know that there are over a 100 systems where just plus or minus, just a few percentage points, just a few degrees, that over 100 systems on the earth that would create an environment this way or that way that would make life impossible on this earth? Scientists tell us that the way that we get water in our environment is through volcanic activity. I don't know all the science behind it, but the, the scientists tell us that the way that we get water in our environment is through volcanic activity. There are currently 350 million cubic miles of water on our planet. Scientists tell us that through volcanic activity, we produce each year one mile, one cubic mile of water on the earth. Now here's what this means. That means that next year there's gonna be one more cubic mile of water on the earth. Year before there was one less mile of one cubic mile of water less on the earth. That makes sense so far? That's interesting because scientists tell us that there are right now roughly 350 million cubic miles of water on the earth. Each year we gain one, last year we had one less. Make sense so far? Now you run those numbers back and you find since there's 350 million cubic miles of water on the earth, each year we gain one, last year we had one less, that 350 million years ago there was no water on the earth. It's interesting to me because that is the place where evolutionists call the fish age. (laughs) Scientists tell us, scientists tell us that the sun loses 10,200,000 tons of mass every second. 10,200,000 tons of mass every second. Now, you run that back a second or so ago, the sun had 10,200,000 tons of mass just a, just a second ago, and then before that and before that, you run that, that back a day and you go, gee, you know, that's, that's a significant amount. Well, what does that really mean? Well, here's what this means. This means that 1,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, the sun had 6% more mass than it has right now, losing 10,200,000 tons of mass every second. Make sense so far? So a 1,000 years ago, the sun had 6% more mass. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to you and I? Well, that means simply this. According to those calculations, some 200 million years ago, 150 million years after the fish age, but 200 million years ago, the sun had so much mass that it was literally touching the earth. That made for a very warm fish age. Now, maybe as I share this, Something inside of you says, this doesn't really add up. You see, there's too many systems to all happen by random chance. Well, if it's not this, well, is there another explanation? Well, I suggest to you that there is another explanation. Notice, if you would, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, everybody there? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now I want you to I want to read that again. In the beginning God underlined God created the heavens and the earth. Now here's what this means. And here's the two camps. And you get to choose today which camp you are in. Again, the theory of evolution holds that without any outside information, no knowledge, all by random chance, all of this happened. We, on the other hand, as believers, hold that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, here are the two possibilities. Christianity, and you want to write this down, holds that God, you might want to write that down, God created everything out of, Nothing. God created everything out of nothing. Now, there's another option. You choose. The other option, evolution, holds. Ready? Nothing created everything out of nothing. Nothing created everything out of nothing. Now, if you're here today, I'm hoping that you're on the side of Genesis chapter 1. God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, good. Because I want to make sure I'm talking to the right crowd And because uh, you're here today I'm just assuming that you embrace the truth of Genesis chapter 1 You're a believer and so God says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth I've given you a couple of talking points But there are many, many more But for our purposes today, I'm going to move on First thing I want to highlight today though is as we go In Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 Notice he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth As I've just shared, it essentially means that in the beginning God created everything out of nothing. Make sense? God created everything out of nothing. Now, here's the deal. It's not on your outline. Once you embrace and get past Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, everything else in the Bible is easy. You see, if if you accept that God created everything out of nothing because he's God and he can do that, you'll never have a problem with the virgin birth. Once you accept that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth you know, out of nothing because he, he said so, and he created everything out of nothing because he was God and he can do that, you, you won't have a problem with the Trinity. If you, if you accept that in the beginning God created everything out of nothing, you'll never have a problem with the miracle stories of the Bible. Because once you embrace this one verse, the rest of the Bible becomes easy. Make sense? So do you embrace it? Good. Good. Good, then let's move on. I also want to point out one other thing in verse 1 as we move through, and I want you to write this down. The Bible begins with, and I want you to write this down, the Trinity, the Trinity. The Bible begins with the Trinity. Now now you say, how in the world do you get that from there? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I want to point out one thing. The word God there, it translates into English as God, singular. The word in the original Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim is a plural for the word God as I put it there in your outline Elohim means plural of gods in the ordinary sense Here's how this works If I say El in the Bible For those of you who have been around the Bible for, for long You know that L typically just, just means God So you hear Israel, Daniel, and you know Mike El you know, Every time you see the L in, in the Bible in one of the names It just means God God's attached to the name Elohim, if I say cherub, you say that's a type of angel. If I say cherubim, cherubim, uh, that means it's more than one. Im is plural. And so you, if I were to say cherub, you'd say that's one. If I say cherubim, and you'll see that in the Bible, it just means more than one. There's, a, there, there's several. When you come to this word Elohim, it's translated as God to give sense to us, but it's the plural of God. It's the plural of God. Now, God, in the first verse of this chapter, refers to himself in the plural. That is, you and I would say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's just one of those little theological points. In Israel, they would say this one verse over and over each and every week as they came to the temple or they came to the synagogue. It's called the Great Shema. And, uh, you know, just the word doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I, but here's what they would say. In Deuteronomy 6.4, they would say, Hear, O Israel... The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. How many of you have heard that before? The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now the word Lord there on your, on your outline is capitalized. Anytime you see that in the Bible and you see the word Lord, typically the Hebrew name is Yahweh, Yahweh. And, and yet he says Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. It, it essentially is what he's saying. But the word God there is the word Elohim, plural. And so it literally says Yahweh is our gods and Yahweh is one. What's he saying? Well, it's this concept of the Trinity. There are three in one. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see that in the New Testament. Notice what it says. John said it like this. John says there in your outline, he says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was, and I want you to underline the word with... The word was with God and the word, what's that word? Was God. So whatever is with alongside of God is also was God and is in fact God. Then it goes on and it says, and he was in the beginning with God. We know that the word is going to refer uh, to Jesus. It goes on and it says, and the word that was with God and was God became, what's that word? Underline that. Underline that. And dwelt among us. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus is God. That's the fundamental teaching of all Christianity, whether you're a Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Roman, Catholic. Jesus is God. It's what separates Christianity from every other faith. It's Jesus is God. In the beginning, God, Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's plural, created the heaven and the earth. What does that mean? God the Father was involved, God the Son was involved, and God the Holy Spirit was involved. It's not really part of our study today, but I just thought I would highlight it as we go on. We're going to find that in the book of Genesis, he talks about creation, but it's not so much to give us how it was created, but to tell us who actually did this. And so the idea is that God did this. Make sense so far? We pick it up. Verse 1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. And the earth was, and I want you to underline formless and void, you might want to circle that word and write empty because that's what it means, and darkness was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Elohim said, let there be light, underline that, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, underline was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was an underlying evening and there was morning one day. Now, a couple of things for, for a little Bible trivia. God began creating on the day that you and I would call Sunday. On the Sabbath day, He rests. That's at the end of the week. So the Sabbath is what day? Saturday. He begins creating on the first day. That is Sunday. And so we begin our creation on the day of Sunday. Notice in verse 2, it says that the earth was formless, Uh, that that word can be translated confusion, wilderness, chaos, it says it's void, which just means it's empty, and it was characterized by darkness, that'll be important for our study as we go, but I want you to notice in verse 2, He says the earth was formless and void, and darkness was moving over the surface, um, over the, uh, was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God, underline that, was moving over the surface of the water. So in this formlessness, in this emptiness, in this dark, darkness, the one thing that we see is the spirit of God is right there and God is doing something. And the first thing that God does is he says, let there be light. Everybody see that? He says, and the light is good. You say, Pastor Dan, why are you telling me this? We're going somewhere with this. He says, let there be light. And he says, morning and night, you know, day and night. But this light that God says, let there be light, will not be the sun and the moon as we know it. That won't occur until the fourth day. This light that God says, let there be light in this place of darkness and emptiness, God says, let there be light. This will be a light that is totally unexplainable by anything in the natural realm. This light occurs because God says, let there be light. Now tuck that away and we'll come back to that as we go. But then also notice that in verse 5, he says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, underline evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the reason I want to highlight this is, is there will be those that you will come across, and they will try to mingle creationism with evolution. And one of the things that they will point to is they will say, you know that word day in the Hebrew, the word is yom for, for those of you who you know, want to be Bible scholars and press your friends at parties. But, but the word yom just simply means day or time period. One day I was driving down the road with my little sister and we were listening to a song on the radio and she says, was well, that, that song popular in your day, in my day, the 80s? That's like not a generation, it's just a few years. But, but we refer to that as just a time period. And so some people would look at this and they say, well, there's six days of creation on the seventh day God rested. Could it be that those days were time periods and not really 24 hour days? How many of you ever heard that? Okay, now here's what, what I would suggest to you. Notice in verse 5, the Holy Spirit's going to go out of his way to make sure that we understand God's not talking about a time period because he uses the terms morning and evening. Notice he says in verse 5, he says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. And so morning and evening, you might want to write this down, implies a 24-hour day. And the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to make sure that we get it. It was the understanding... Of the writers of the Bible, that when God talked about the seven days of creation, that he was speaking about 24-hour time periods. Notice what Moses has to say. Moses actually wrote the book of Genesis 2. Moses says, there in your outline, he says, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here, here's what he says. God created six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And that's why we rest on the seventh day. Moses understood, as the writer of this, that God was speaking about 24-hour time periods. Make sense so far? Okay. So the first day is characterized by confusion, formlessness, impudence, darkness. But God's spirit is there, and God speaks in that circumstance. And he says, let there be light, and it is good. Good it is good now did you underline where God said it was good go back and you can read it and underline that that's going to be important especially as we come to day two you see if if we began creation on Sunday what's the next day Sunday okay good now that's important that's important for our study because I I want to highlight something on day two uh, day two, you know, day one, God says it's good, it's Sunday, and then he comes to Monday, and it says, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, verse six, and let it, underline, separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated, underline, separated the waters which were below the expanse of the waters and those which were above the expanse, and it was so. Verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Once again, he points out it's evening and morning. It's a 24-hour period and it's the second day. Now, the first thing that you notice as you go through each and every day of creation, God says, God says, he looks at his creation and he always says, it is, it is good. Did anybody see that on Monday? It's the one day that God does not say, it is good. Write that down. Now here's the conclusion. You finally have a God who relates to you. And it's the only day that he doesn't say, it is good. Now, you notice in verse 7, he says, God made the expanse Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Well, uh, very quickly, what God is doing is God is separating the water so that there is an expanse in heaven and there is an expanse on the earth. That is, there's, there's now oceans and there's dry land, but there is, around the earth at this time, God says that there is an expanse of water. That would create... That would create a greenhouse-type effect on the Earth so that the Earth would literally be a tropical paradise. It would mean that there is no North Pole or South Pole at this time. There would be an equal temperature all the way around the Earth, which is why in the fossil record you will find tropical animals all the way up towards the North Pole and the South Pole fossilized or frozen, having tropical plants in their mouth. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, there was a time when the earth was completely like a greenhouse. And uh, we'll see what happened when we get to Genesis chapter 6. But in day 2, you notice that God is beginning to move some things around. He's separating. That'll be important for our study. Make sense so far? Verse um, Day 3. We come to Tuesday. We pick it up in verse 9. And it says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. I love how God says, God says, I want to do this. And it was. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it, what does it say? It was good. Now underline that. That's going to be important. It was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout. That's what it says in my Bible. It, whatever it says in your Bible, you, you circle that. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds. Plants yielding seeds, underline that. And fruit trees, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit. Now, there's, you see that term, after their kind? Everybody see that? I want you to write a squiggly line under that every time you come to it. After their kind, after their kind. If I miss it, you pick it up and you write it down. You'll see how many times God says, after their kind. He's doing something. But notice he talks about, he says, after their kind, with seed in them. Underline that, with seed in them. Bearing fruit, he says, after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed after their kind, And trees, underline this, bearing fruit with seed in them, underline that, after their kind, and God saw that it was, what's it say? Good. Okay, a couple of things on on, uh, day three. This is Tuesday. Day three, you notice, and I had you underline that two times God says it is good. Everybody see that? Two times on, on Tuesday, God says it is good. Mrs. Monday, but two times on Tuesday. Now, wh- why is that? Well, I'm not really sure why he did that, but it's interesting that the nation of Israel picks up on this, and in very traditional Jewish culture, they will have people get married on Tuesday because, in their mindset, it's the day of the double blessing. And for those of you who've been married, you know that you need all the help you can get. So... <laughs> But it's also interesting to me, in verse 11, he talks about creating trees. He says, God said that the earth sprout, you see there's growth, vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with the seed in them. Then in verse 12, he says, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them. Them. Now, now, why is that so important? There is um, this age-old thing, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And some people say, well, God created, did he create the seed or did he create the plants first? How did that happen? The Bible tells us that God created the plants fully mature with fruit, with the seed being in it, ready to, to take on the, the next generation. So uh, just a little tidbit of information there. But I want you to notice that what we're beginning to see here, in day one, it was characterized by a darkness, a formlessness, emptiness, and yet God's spirit is right there, and God speaks into that darkness, and he says, let there be light, and there's light. In day two, God begins to separate, but in day three, we notice that there is beginning to be a growth. And In my Bible, it says things begin to sprout. And so tuck that away, and we'll come back to that. Then we come to day this would be Wednesday. Now we pick it up in verse 14, and it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Now, very quickly, this is where the sun and moon are created and they come in. Not like the light. Back in day one. This is the sun and moon. But notice he says, verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for, and I want you to underline the next word. It says for signs, for signs. Everybody see that? For signs. And not just signs, but for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven. And then I want you to underline, to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. I love this because um, it gives kind of like this afterthought, you know. People spend their whole life studying the stars, and God says, yeah, I made the stars also. Verse 17. God placed them in the expanse of the heaven to give, they were placed to give light on the earth. Underline that. And to govern the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness. You know what's light? You know what's darkness? And God saw that it was good. Now, a couple of things. First of all, I've placed on your outline. He says, I've placed these lights to give a sign, a sign. Well, what is he talking about? Well, literally, uh, there in your outline, the Hebrew word, I won't try to pronounce, well, oath is the the word. It means a signal. It can be used literally or figuratively. It's like a flag, a beacon, a monument, an omen. Um, It it gives evidence. The signs that it speaks of here in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 14, refers to what you and I would call the zodiac. The zodiac. Now, our understanding of the zodiac comes from mostly from our Babylonian uh, understanding. And Babylon, as you know, is modern-day Iraq. Many people, many theologians believe that it is a corruption of an earlier understanding. You see, in Babylonian culture, there was a man whose name was Daniel, who was a Hebrew who was taken captive by the Babylonians. And he became as over time, he became the leader of their astrologers, as some of your Bibles will say, magis. Ultimately, the magis become the three wise men a few hundred years later who come to see Jesus when he's just a child there, there in, um, in um, Bethlehem. And, and so Daniel becomes the leader of this group that your Bibles call the astrologers. Apparently, Daniel brings with him He brings with him an understanding. The astrologers pick up on that, and they begin to take that. But over time, it begins to be corrupted, and it turns into something else. It says that it is a sign to give evidence or to tell a story. And we'll see how this works out in Genesis chapter 5, so a little leap to the, to the future. The idea is that God gave signs in the heavens before there was writing, before they had things written down, when it was only the oral tradition, so that they could look up and tell a story. When you take the signs of the zodiac, and, and you can type in biblical zodiac in your computer and come up with all sorts of information on this, it begins to tell a story starting with Virgo, or the virgin with child. It goes all the way around telling the gospel story that God said I gave in Genesis for signs and ends with what you would say, Leo, we would say the lion that is triumphant. It's a fascinating thing, and I'll let you do your research and and see what you come up with. But but um, it talks about those signs, but this day is characterized after there 's darkness, and God says, "Let there be light, God begins to separate, and then there 's growth, but this day is separated by light coming into a dark place and by being a sign in order to that people can see as as, as symbols so that is day four with me so far, day five. We pick it up in verse 20, and here's what it says. Then God said, let the waters team, now I want you to underline, team, with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of heavens. And God created the great sea monsters. Your Bibles might say it a little bit different. You underline sea monsters, whatever it says. And every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed, underline swarmed, after their kind. And every wing bird after its kind and God saw that it was good God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning a fifth day now there's a couple of things first of all this day would be Thursday and I had you underline something where it said sea monsters is that what your Bible said? sea monsters? did you see that? Now, that's an interesting word because it's an awkward word. It's a word that that in our culture we're somewhat uncomfortable with. That word literally means dragon, means dragon, kind of a fun thing. Other places in the Bible, it's literally translated as dragon. For instance, in Isaiah, i put it there in your outline. He says, in that day, the Lord with a sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, which would be a sea sea, uh, monster, and piercing serpent, even leviathan that crooked serpent and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea everybody see that the dragon that is in the sea now why is that so important this is one of those things that that i've always found interesting as you know i have um my background is in social sciences and and i i wanted to grow up and become a cultural anthropologist and uh they um didn't work out but but anyways um i'm here i'm here so um this is this is what i do but um it's interesting that in cultural anthropology, one of the things that you study is you study, you study legends of a culture. And, and it's interesting that when you go into a culture and they have a legend, you go, that's a neat legend of that culture. And what becomes even more interesting is whenever you go to another culture and they have the same legend. You know, If it's something in one culture, you say, well, that's cute, it's quaint. But when there's another culture that's separated from this culture over here and they have the same legend, you go, well, there's something to this. It's interesting that the dragon is something that is in every culture around the globe. If you go to South America, it's part of their culture. If you go to China, it's very much part of their culture. If you go to Europe, they talk about the knights fighting dragons. It's something that's part of every culture around the world, and it was part of their culture when these cultures had no understanding or no knowledge that these other cultures even existed. And why, why is that so important? Well, it's just interesting that that the Bible talks about dragons and we find that there's, there is one thing in all the cultures that comes back to, and they all have a... Um, how do you say they, they all have a concept of a dragon. What's also very interesting is in the artwork of dragons and cultures that have had no contact with one another, they all have the same renditions of the dragon. So there, it causes some cultural anthropologists to believe that there was at some time um, dragons who actually lived on the earth. Uh, do, you're saying, Dan, do you believe that? I think it's kind of cool. I believe it, but you know. <sighs> now, one other thing... I, I will say this, and I, I know you're will to run with this, but, but I do not believe that the dragon that he's talking about in Genesis chapter 1 has anything to do with your ex-spouse. So let's just move on from there. And... But I want you to notice that day five, after the separation and after the, the growth that begins, now we see that there becomes this, um, this, this um, concept of incredible fruitfulness going on. And I find that interesting, and we'll come back to that as we go. Day six, day six, Friday. We pick it up in verse 24, and here's what it says. 24, it says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us, underline us, Make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the earth, uh, or the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, very quickly, um, I've placed on your outline one sentence that just says DNA enforces after its own kind. Everybody see that? The theory of evolution was developed before we had an understanding of DNA. DNA enforces that we produce what we are. And DNA is, is kind of the sheriff, you might say, that makes sure that we don't produce something else because we can only produce what our DNA says. It's interesting that the theory of evolution, which says, no, we produce something else at a certain time, the Bible says, and now we know through DNA, that you, you really don't, you, you produce this. God says everything is produced after its own kind. God gave us DNA so that it would enforce after its own kind. The DNA of a snake is very different than the DNA of a human. And so uh, you can do your research on that and run with that. So verse 20, let's pick it up in verse 26. He says, Then God said, Let us... uh, Then God, Elohim, which would be God in the plural, said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God, Elohim, in the plural, created man and now you gotta stop right here, his, his own image. Before I go on any further, let let me share something. There is, when he talks about let, Let us make God in our image. God's referring to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a thought by those who who try to, um, you know, contradict this saying that God's speaking to the angels and he's saying, let us make, you know, speaking to the angels saying, hey guys, let's, let's, let's us make man in our image as though angels are in the image of God. The idea though falls apart when God says, no, he created them in his image god's image not the angels so then god said let us make man in our image uh what verse oh verse 27 god created him created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he singular created them god elohim blessed them and god said to them be, be fruitful and multiply be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it And rule over it, the fish and the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's God saying, you know, do this, be be fruitful. And uh, then you go on and he says in verse 29, he says, then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed shall be food for you shall be food for you. He goes on. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given, underline, every green plant for food and it was so. Now here's the idea. Those two verses tell us that we did in fact start as vegetarians. And and, and, um, it's kind of sad because... um, You can really become vitamin steak deficient if, uh, you know, you're... But we did start in the garden as vegetarians. Not only did we start as vegetarians, but the Bible teaches that all of the animals started as vegetarians. Make sense so far? Okay, now here's the thing. If you go online and you type in Genesis 129 diet... They're going to tell you that this is the biblical diet. They will take you right back to Genesis: 129, and they will say, "You are to eat. this is the diet that God gave you." Yes, it was in Genesis chapter one. Some things change a few chapters later. There's a flood. There's a whole different ecosystem. Things are very different. And a few chapters later, it says this. In Genesis 9, it says, God says, To every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give to you as I gave the green plant. And so just as God says, Hey, go eat all the greens you want. Now God says, Go eat all the meat that you want. Thank you, Jesus. Verse... Verse 30, and you know, if if you're a vegetarian, I don't mean to offend you, just just give me your meat. Verse 31, (laughs) he says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, a couple of things. God tells us in verse 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply. He says to man, be fruitful and multiply. And the reason that's so important is because because of DNA, we find out, physically speaking, that we reproduce what we are after its kind. Write that down. After its kind. Now, day six is characterized by incredible reproduction. Notice what... What Jesus said to you and I as believers. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the idea. You and I as believers are to be involved in spiritual reproduction as God told us in the garden to be involved in physical reproduction. It's a fascinating study, but each one of us today in this room is in one of the days of God's creation. As you heard me read through, maybe some of the the things that I said kind of connected with you. For instance, maybe you're here today, and you would be in day one of creation. And you were to look at your life in verse 2, when it says the earth, and you might say, I am formless and void, and darkness is moving over the surface of the deep. Maybe today you'd be saying, you know, that's me. Uh, that word formless, I mean, I'm not going anywhere, it's not coming together, I, I, I just I, I feel like that I'm alone in this, and I'm void, and that word means empty, and maybe today you'd say, that's, that's where I'm at, I'm empty, I'm empty. And you would say about your life, if you were to be painfully honest, you'd say, you know what, I think my life is characterized by darkness, because I feel and I sense that I'm just somehow separated from God. And I believe that's the the message that God wants to give us in day one. Because it's in that darkness that God says that his spirit is right there. And it's in that darkness that God's spirit says, let there be light. And You know what I love about that? Is that's not the sun and that's not the moon. That's a light that comes in because God's spoken and has no explanation whatsoever. And it's just what happens when God's spirit is there in your time of darkness, and you say, "I, I, I just, it's, it's empty, it's, I'm done. And God says, but I'm right here. And, and I believe that maybe God brought you here today if you would say that that's who you are, because God's about to speak light into your life. It's gonna be a light that, that you just won't understand. It will be a light that you will sense, you, you will experience, but you, 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 all it is is God saying, let there be light in your life. Now, now here, here's what else I love. Maybe that's happened in your life today. And uh, you find yourself, you're not in day one because you've experienced that light. But in day two, it was characterized by separation. God begins to separate some things. And maybe you've seen the light and and inside you're sensing that God's beginning to separate. Maybe separating some relationships. Maybe he's separating you from situations and things that you were participating in beforehand. And, And now there's that separation. Maybe that separation is a little uncomfortable, but deep down inside you know that God is doing it. That's a cool thing because it's God at work. Now there's light. Now he's separating. He's moving some things around according to his purpose. Maybe, maybe you've experienced where, yes, there, there has been that time of separation from some things. But maybe you're in day three. And I love day three because in verse 11 he says, And God said, let the earth sprout. What's so great about that is all of a sudden we're beginning to see some growth. Maybe spiritually speaking, you're in that place where where as you look at your life, you go, you know, I I am growing. I'm seeing some things. I, you know, I, 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 six months ago would have been very different. I'm not walking back to those things, but there's, there's something going on in my life and I'm beginning to grow, which is interesting to me because when that takes place, it's God's preparation to take us into day four. And in day four in verse 14, you notice, here's what he says says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be four signs. Now, all of a sudden, maybe you're in day four of your spiritual walk. And in that day, all of a sudden, people around you are seeing that now you're a light and you're still in a very dark place and those around you are gravitating to you and they're saying, you know, you're like a sign to me because I'm I'm seeing that that you've got something now and and I, I know that there's something different about you and I would have never believed it before because you're not the same person you were just a year ago. Something's different. Well, that's great because now you're in day four and God's using you as a light and he's using you as a sign. Or maybe, maybe you're in day five Notice in day five, very quickly, in verse 22, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And you recall that it was swarming and teeming. And maybe right now in your life, as God has brought you from darkness and he separated some things and there's beginning that growth and he's used you as a sign, now you're looking at your life and you're saying, you know, there's fruitfulness in my life. I, I, I like what God is doing. It's very different than what I've experienced in the past. And there's fruitfulness. Well, maybe that's just preparation for day six. And day six is simply now God's using you to reproduce other disciples. God's using you to reproduce other believers. God's using you more than just a sign. But people are saying that there's fruitfulness in your life. And they're saying, I want what you have. And so there's one question. Each of us today. We're in one of these days in our spiritual walk. Here's the question. What day... Am I in? What day am I in? Am I in day one? I mean, am am I in that place where I'd say, you know, it's, it's dark, it's empty. And, and yet I just, I don't know. I want you to know God's spirit is right there. And he's brought you here today because he wants to say, let there be light. He wants to come into your life and begin to separate. He wants to see growth. He wants to use you as a sign. He wants there to be fruitfulness. He wants to use you to reproduce himself in other people. So what day are you in? Here's what I'm going ask you to do. Very simply, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? If you would, with every eye closed and every, every head bowed, if today you're here and you're saying, you know, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm in day one. My, my life would be spiritually dark. It would be characterized by just, I mean, I really need God to say, let there be light in my life. If that's you, would you just raise your hand and just let me know that you're here today? Okay. Okay, you can put them down. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you want God to say, let there be light in your life, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And that simple prayer, Jesus says, if you come to me, I won't turn you away. I mean, the very reason I brought you here today, he would be saying to you is because I wanted to do this in your life. And so here's what, here's what we want to do. I'm going to say a simple prayer. And congregation, I'm going to ask that you just join in with me. But in the simple prayer, we're just going to invite God to say, let there be light in my life. We're going to invite Jesus to come in and forgive us of our sins and to make us new to begin to separate to begin to grow so if you'd say that prayer and in, in your heart say it to the lord and mean it and if you do you'll say that let there be light so let's pray jesus christ join me congregation jesus christ come into my life forgive me of my sins And wash me clean. I'm giving myself to you. And as best as I know how, I will follow you from this day forward. I pray that you would speak, let there be light in my life. And I pray that your spirit would begin to work. I pray that today you begin to do your work and separate me from the things that that I need to be separated from. And I pray that you would cause growth in my life. And I will follow you. And from this day, I will be known as a Christian. I give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen.